series through Colossians, starting in verse 18, going through chapter 4, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, it will be behind me. It says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. May God bless the reading of this word. You can be seated at this time. So if you've been with us as we've been going through Colossians, you might notice that I included uh, the last four verses that John actually preached on last week in the text for today. Um, And I include them because I believe they directly relate to the scripture for this week. Altogether, this is a collective instruction for Christian households. And even though I'm just going to be focusing primarily on the parts that John uh, did not preach on, I'm going to be speaking about the parts about slaves and masters today, I figured it was worth including the previous verses for the sake of Paul's complete thought. So I've titled my sermon, uh, As to the Lord. Honestly, not sure if it's the best title in in the world, Um, but it's a phrase that comes up a lot, especially later on in the sermon, and as I was sitting there thinking um, what to title it, it, that phrase just kept coming into my mind. Um, So when I originally read this text assignment for the sermon a couple weeks back, I got to say, I I got pretty excited um, because I don't know if you know anything about me. Those of you who do know me, you'll know that I really like tough questions and controversy. Um, I, like, I like situations or questions that requires you to look at something from multiple perspectives. And I like, um, it's almost like a game for me, being able to switch looking at something and considering all of its aspects. It's like an interpretive game that I like to play. And this text is fun for me um, because it does have an element of interpretive difficulty. You see, lots of people think that the fact that this part of the Bible mentions slavery without explicitly condemning it um, means that the Bible condones slavery. The fact that he instructs masters, but he doesn't say, masters, set your slaves free. Um, and I, I've been on enough like Facebook feeds, you know, enough Facebook comment threads of people who don't believe in God, people who don't Um, adhere to the Christian religion that criticize the Bible on this point a lot and heavily. And I I just want to point out the faulty thinking in this. So I don't want to spend too much time dealing with the issue, but um, I do believe it's worth responding to because it is such a common criticism of the Bible. So I'm going to answer this question in two different ways. I'm going to answer it in a sociological way and a biblical way. Um, So the sociological way goes something like this. Whether we know it or not, we all have a lens through which we view the world. Every single one of us, we have a lens called our culture, right? Our experiences. These lenses affect the way we see and interpret everything. We don't learn anything new without first considering it in light of everything we already know, right? This is something that we just naturally do, whether you're aware of it or not. The fact that you're born in the 21st century in America does affect the way you see things. 
And so when people today read the parts of the Bible that deal with slavery, there's a particular part of our cultural lens that comes to the forefront and makes a really heavy impact on the way we see that. This part of our lens is called the civil rights movement, right? The, we've lived through the 60s, the 70s. We've lived through um, the past couple years. I, I think, honestly, history books in the future will include us in the present day as still part of the civil rights movement. It's just kind of morphing and evolving And so we live in a world with no open slavery because the civil rights movement has happened. The abolition of slavery has happened. Those things are in our past. And so we have like this zero tolerance attitude. Anytime we see um, slavery, it it still does exist today, but it exists underground and it's being actively hunted down to be be ended, to be uh, put to an end. And so we want Paul, when we read this, to have this same type of zero-tolerance attitude towards slavery that we have because we have existed in a time that has led us to see it that way. But Paul's just not concerned with that in the way that we are because he doesn't have that cultural context. He's living 2,000 years ago, right? The first century AD as a Roman citizen, these events that happened in the civil rights movement are not on his radar. He doesn't know about them. Right, he hasn't lived through the imperialism where Western, cult, Western countries are spreading throughout the world, making colonies, dominating entire people groups, sub, subjecting them to slavery just for the purpose of economic gain. He hasn't lived through that era in time. He hasn't lived through the 1900s where the aftermath of the abolition of slavery led to such a harsh racial divide in our country. He hasn't lived through any of that. And it's as if the critics just want Paul to rise up and lead this movement to end slavery. The fact that it exists, like he has to have that type of zero tolerance attitude, but it's just not on his radar. Culturally, it's not. And then biblically, let's look at some of the text. In verse uh, 25, it says, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. So Paul is speaking to the slaves at this moment, saying the wrongdoer will be paid back. It's going to be rectified. That seems to indicate that Paul recognizes that there is some sort of evil happening. There is some sort of mistreatment of slaves in the contemporaneous situation. And he addresses this to the masters as well. Their only warning in this entire text is treat your slaves fairly and justly. That's their instruction. It's almost more of a warning than an encouragement, right? Treat your, mas- treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So he is concerned with the treatment of slaves. In verse 11, Paul says, Here there is not Jew and Greek, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And so in this same chapter of this same text, Paul has just broken down every single cultural barrier between different types of peoples. He's broken down everything. He doesn't matter what class you belong to or what race you are or what social or economic status you have to Paul because Paul is not like concerned with these worldly definitions, these worldly codes, these worldly systems. He might be even recklessly unconcerned with them, right? He didn't care if he was a prisoner. He didn't care if he went to jail for the sake of the gospel. He didn't care if he was preaching to Greeks or Jews or barbarians. He preached to everyone. All he cared about was preaching the gospel and taking the spirit of God to those in need of it. And Jesus did the same thing, right? Jesus could have 
led this social justice movement to end slavery, to end the Roman Empire, to end these injustices. He could have delivered the people from their physical situations, but Jesus just wasn't concerned with their physical situation as much as, that's the key word, as much as. He was concerned with their physical situation, but he was far more concerned with their spiritual situation. What is the state of your soul? How do you stand before the Lord? And I think Paul is following in Jesus's footsteps when he's conducting his ministry in this way. So all of this to say that it wouldn't make sense for Paul to include a part here about the abolition of slavery. It wouldn't, because it was just so much different back then. So hopefully I have given you enough argument to kind of get past that issue if you were wondering about it. Maybe you weren't wondering about it, and I've brought an issue to your attention and answer it, hopefully. If not, please see me after service. Like I said, I love talking about these things. So um, I want to move on. So far, we've only looked at what this passage isn't saying. It's not saying that slavery is okay, but I want to move on to what is the passage saying? What can we read from this? What, what can we gain from this mention of encouragement to slaves and masters? How does that relate to our context? So in preparation for all of my sermons, I, I like to read commentaries. Uh, commentaries are basically biblical scholars who read the Bible and kind of write down their thoughts, right? People who know a lot more than I do. And I learned that this formula in verses 3, 18 through 4, 1, this whole household code was a fairly common thing um, at that time, biblically and non-biblically, right? A lot of people would have these household codes. They were called oikonomias. Um, that's where we get our word economy. The management of the household and what the commentaries pointed out, and what makes this text unique among all of the different household codes that existed at the time, is how many times this household code, that this oikonomia, emphasizes the mention of the Lord. So I'm going to read the passage again, but this time I'm going to emphasize every single time that the Lord is mentioned, and we're going to see what that says. So starting in verse 18, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven who is the Lord. Now you might be thinking, hmm, so you're telling me that the difference between pagan Greek text and the Bible is how much the Bible talks about the Lord. Okay, fair enough. But as obvious as it seems, I think it's worth emphasizing, and I think it has a lot of impact on how we can actually apply it to our own context. Because I think what Paul is essentially saying to his readers is that in every relationship you have, do it as to the Lord. See, Paul starts off with domestic relationships. He's talking about the household, right? 
And he's saying that the only thing you truly need to concern yourself with is how that relationship glorifies the Lord. So husbands, are you acting as to the Lord? Wives, are you acting in a way that's pleasing to the Lord? Children and parents, do you treat each other as is pleasing to the Lord? Slaves, masters, do you act in a way that is pleasing to the Lord? And if the qualifier of what makes this uniquely a Christian ethic is the fact that it references the Lord then we can take that qualifier and apply it universally to every relationship in our context, past our household. Church members, are we acting in a way that is pleasing to the Lord? Friends, do you treat each other in a way that is pleasing to the Lord? Co-workers, employees, employers, are you acting in a way that is pleasing to the Lord? You see, in every different type of relationship that you have, in all different parts of your life, The question is, are you participating in that relationship in a way that is pleasing to the Lord? So let's take a moment to back up up and support this with the gospel. Because if I don't, then I might just be sending you guys out into a new world of legalism and self-righteousness. I'm just going to go out and please the Lord today on my own power because that's that's what you, you told me. I got to go in every one of my relationships, please the Lord. So it can easily turn into a work harder, be better type of ethic. And I don't want that misconception to happen. Paul here mentions pleasing the Lord only to those who have professed a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. We know that we can't do anything of our own power. We can't do anything in our own sinful nature that pleases God unless it first be qualified by the saving work of Christ, of the crucified and resurrected Savior. But if you're a Christian this morning, let me say that it is one of the primary joys of the Christian life that we are now placed in such a position as to be able to relate to and please God. Our worship, anything we do to try and please him, I think as qualified by the work of Jesus Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit, we are actually able to do that. God has made that type of relationship before him possible because we have been justified through our faith. We can actually live lives that glorify God. That's good news, right? Because Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit have come down to help us do so. This is a powerful message. This is the message that can easily cross the thousand years of cultural divide. This is the message that is always universally true. But now let's take a look at what I think is the most amazing part of these verses. In all of Paul's address to the different domestic roles, he is, his address to slaves is unique because it's much longer. It's more extensive. He gives them a lot more encouragement when everyone else only gets like a single instruction, right, a single phrase to do, he speaks to slaves extensively. Almost to the point where it sounds like he's getting sidetracked from the rest of it, right? It's like he started talking to the slaves and he just had so much to say that he kind of got off topic. I think this is because Paul knows that their situation is unique. They have unique hardships and expectations. They, slaves were often dehumanized. Uh, typically, the, if anyone had anything to say to a slave as far as instructions, they would send a letter to the master to relate to the slave. The slave didn't get his own messages. So the fact that Paul's even talking to, to them at all is a way of humanizing them and giving them that personal value. But I think that Paul's concern for their hardship is why he gives them, I think, the most encouraging and the most radically difficult advice of the entire lot. It says, bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily 
as for the Lord, and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. This is a text that almost like doesn't even need any exposition. Almost doesn't even need any explanation. It says exactly what it needs to say on its own. So let's imagine if we read this text, but we changed the words a little bit in a way that seems a little bit more relatable. Employees, obey in everything those who are your company superiors, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Yeah, I've changed the text. Yeah, I've changed the word there. That's not what the text actually says. But I think that the situation of bondservants would have been pretty close to the American workplace in a lot of ways. A lot of American workers have bosses that really treat them very unfairly. And they can't quit because if they quit, they would have no way of eating or having no place to live. It's all about economics, right? And so I think what Paul is saying here is he's talking to the workers as he's saying... In all that you do, in all of your work situations, work as to the Lord. Does this not provide everything we need for a radically found peace in our workplace and in our jobs? Does this not give us everything we need? Like if we actually follow that instruction, if we actually see every single menial task as working directly to the Lord Jesus Christ, will we not be able to do it with joy? Will we not be able to do it in peace? I think the problem is that this advice is just so dang difficult to actually live out, right? It's so hard. I graduated in May uh, from college, and uh, before I graduated, I I loved everything about where I was at. I loved college. I loved getting to go to school and go to class and talk to my professors on a daily basis. I liked being able to do that all day. I didn't have to work on the side because we had enough income without that, so I didn't have that double burden. My life was amazing. I loved everything. And then I decided to work in public school. Um, And, you know, it's a lot different. It is a lot different. Um, Anyone who's ever taught in public school, God bless you. Um, I now have experience in the secular workplace. And though I might be young, I've only been working there a couple months, I can begin to relate in a lot of ways to a lot of the struggles that I've seen happening around me and a lot of y'all's lives, and a lot of lives that I talk to with my coworkers, right? I've seen so many struggles with tough work situations. How many times have you guys gone around a prayer circle and asked, how can we pray for you? And their answer is just work, right? It's common. It's very, very common. And I see myself using that as an answer all the time. Pray for my work. Pray for my job situation. Pray that I have peace in this. You see, I've known that it can be difficult, but it's almost like I compartmentalized theory and actuality where I, I, I've, like, watched and I've known, like, oh, yeah, working is hard. And then I get there and it's like, oh, yeah, working's hard. You know, it's like the difference between I know that it's hard and I know that it's hard, right? Kind of intangible, but I think it's very real. So to take this advice sounds nearly impossible. To work heartily in everything that I do as for the Lord and not for men. To deal with the district pressure for high scores with a class full of students who just don't care as for the Lord and not for men. To try and manage a classroom of students that consistently disrespect me on a daily basis. 
as for the Lord and not for men. To trust in God for ultimate deliverance from every possible evil. Keeping that mindset and perspective in every difficult situation that you're placed with. To go to work and serve the Lord Christ. I think our main problem is that whenever something is presented before us that seems impossible, it's like we don't even want to try. Right? Oh, that's way too hard. Yeah, no, there's no way. So I'm just going to go and struggle. It's like we, we don't even attempt to implement it into our lives. And I think that if we did, we, we would actually see progress. We would struggle with it, but I think it would help. Either that, or maybe there's, there's this other problem. And I've thought about this. Maybe this is just me. I don't know. Maybe you can relate. But some part of me doesn't even want to implement this ethic in my life because I don't like the idea, if I'm being honest, of leaving justice to God sometimes. I, I want to hold on to my sense of retribution. I feel that if I work heartily, not with eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, I would be giving my bosses, my students, something that they don't deserve, right? You mistreat me, so why would I give you all of my effort? That seems unjust, and I'm not going to do that for you because you do not deserve that. We want to keep hold of our sense of retribution and justice, but Paul is telling the slaves, wrongdoers will be paid back. That's not up to you. There will be no partiality for them. It's going to be dealt with. You work for the Lord. And he, even if we, we understand that, it's almost like the, the fact that they don't deserve it from us, like we can't wrap our, mind, wrap our mind around that, right? We can't wrap our mind around giving someone something that they don't deserve. But you know, dang it, that's grace. That is everything that we've been given. That's our Christian faith. Every single one of us has been given this insurmountable gift that we don't deserve in the least, but we still can't let go of our sense of justice. When God called us out of our sin and into his holy kingdom, he redeemed not just our status before him, but our entire lives here on earth. We live under a new ethic. This changes everything. We don't listen to any household codes or any advice that don't mention the Lord. Because the Lord is everything. Christ is all and in all. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done without partiality. We can trust the Lord to handle it. All that should concern us is how to live as to the Lord. So as we draw to a close, um, I want to say that church, this is no new message Right? It's, it's not anything that we haven't really heard before. It's an old message. But I, I remember talking with Pastor James one time um, about how I've been going to this church for so long with listening to the same preachers that I feel like all the sermons are starting to become very familiar. Almost to the point where, okay, so that's the start of your sermon. I bet I could finish it for you. Right? And, it, and it's like, how do, you, how do you continue to have like this newness of Christian experience if like nothing seems new, right? If everything seems like it's just looping. And James gave me a piece of advice that's really stuck with me um, through, through the years. And it's, yeah, the message might not be different, but every single time you hear it, you're in a different place. It's a new you. So maybe you've heard a message on work before. Maybe you've heard a message on how to glorify God with your work and in the workplace, and maybe you've heard everything that I've just said. 
but you are different today than the last time you heard it. There is a different situation that you're going to go to tomorrow in your workplace that you can apply this in a new way. It's an old message that we still need. And I'm right there with you. I understand that everything gets in the way when we go out into the secular world. I understand just how easy it is to take your sight off of the cross, to get distracted and not care anymore. This, this sense of secular apathy that just, it just surrounds you, man. It, it's spiritual warfare. It really is. I get it. But we've got to stop going into the world as if we're there by ourselves. We have the support and the strength that we need for every good thing through the power of the Holy Spirit, who is the fullness of God and dwells within us. When faced with such a heavy responsibility as this passage presents to us to glorify God in every aspect of our lives, we naturally realize that we need help. But guess what? Jesus said he is sending a helper. We have help. If you are a believer in the mighty, saving power of Jesus Christ this morning, then you are an embodiment of the kingdom of God here on earth. And everywhere you go, you have a choice to spread it or keep it contained. Let us not give up. Let us press on. Let us continue to fight the good fight. And may God grant us the power and the grace to do it effectively here in our own context. Let's pray together. Father, we're here, we are here before you um, asking for help. We give you our work situations. We give you our, um, our anxieties. We give you our stresses. We give you our sense of justice this morning. We lay it all at your feet. We lay it all at the cross. We know that you are good enough and that you are big enough to bring us into a secular workplace and actually work through us to spread your kingdom here on earth. We know that this is our divine purpose. And we thank you for the reminder this morning. We pray that as we go into our weeks that we would actually be able to take this with us. That we would actually be able to go into our jobs and serve you. It's going to be hard. We know that. But Father, we ask that you would comfort us and protect us from any attack that would keep us from glorifying you on a day-to-day basis. We pray all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.